upcoming episodes we have are going to be Emma by Jane Austen and okay. uh, wor- and World War Z. Two classics. Now, uh, A lot of helpful now, lessons. Which of you indulges in Emma? I do. Every business is unique, but the ups and downs we experience as we launch and run our businesses are pretty similar. We're Harmon Brothers, the team behind Pooping Unicorns and other weird but successful video ads you've probably seen. We help businesses grow through unforgettable video marketing, and we're no stranger to tricky situations. In fact, we embrace them. The goal of this podcast is to show how your crappy circumstances could be the golden opportunity that leads to your next success. You're listening to Poop to Gold. Welcome back to From Poop to Gold. I'm Benton Crane, your co-host and the CEO of Harmon Brothers. I'm excited for today's show because I have two guests here with me, and these two guests are part of the reason why Harmon Brothers are known for entertaining and funny ads. Now, of course, we're known for ads that sell and that drive millions of dollars in revenue, but part of the success is that those ads are hilarious. And two of my guests today have written on several of our ads, and they've even been the lead writer on several of our ads. I have with me Mr. Dave Vance and Kellen Erskine. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. Now, the reason they're here as a as a joint interview, they're both here together, is because they are now the co-hosts of a podcast called The Book Pile. And The Book Pile is a podcast that where they review books and mix in enormous amounts of comedy at the same time. So it, you you get a, a great book review and you get entertainment at the exact same time. Real quick, give us the overview about the book pile, guys. Yeah, I, I think of it as a book. I think of it as a podcast where we lure you in with comedy and then make you learn things against your will. So every episode is like a 30 minute episode on a given book, usually nonfiction, but we have been doing uh, a smattering of fiction and we just summarize key lessons and say mean things to each other. <laughs> Give us an example of a few of the books you've covered. So we've done Steve Jobs, Outliers, The Power of Habit. We've done now three of the Harry Potter books, Old Man and the Sea. Just just kind of a, a wide array of helpful and educational nonfiction books and then our favorite self-indulgent fiction books. And just, yeah, to, to give you sort of an idea of more of the spectrum that we're covering, upcoming episodes we have are going to be Emma by Jane Austen and, okay. uh, wor- and World War Z. Two classics. Now, uh, A lot of helpful now, lessons. Which of you indulges in Emma? I do. I've read a bunch of Jane Austen. That's one I haven't read just because I couldn't stand Emma in the movie. And so I've been like gritting my teeth for that book. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Dave in particular has affected my reading list over the years. He has a pretty prolific okay. reading list, and I've taken several of his recommendations, and and I've almost always been happy with with the results of reading the books that he recommends. So check out their podcast, The Book Pile. You won't be disappointed. I remember one of the first conversations that I had with Dave about books, I asked him how many books he had read the year before because I was ready to give him my answer. And <laughs> and Dave said a hundred. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> and then I never told him how many I had read. And then last year he well, read... The, a- nice, the nice thing about prefacing it that way is if the other person's number is higher, you don't have to say yours. Right, exactly. I still you haven't have the- told him. 
Yeah. <laughs> but what was your number, Kellen? Mine was 22. Yeah, and that oh, felt man, good weak. at the time. Weak. <laughs> no, no, 22 is a lot of books. I, I average probably one book per month, so I'm at like a, a dozen per year. And um, I like to consider myself a fairly prolific reader, but compared to you guys, I'm not even close. And that's All the right. nice thing about this podcast is that it's, it's forced me to this year, I will read about 100. But I know in doing that, Dave's number is going to be about probably 350. 375. <laughs> the proportions hold, hold steady. <laughs> All right. So tell us about, uh, and you can each kind of attack this individually if you want. Tell us briefly about your work here at Harmon Brothers, how it happened, how the, the pieces connected and how you ended up involved. I was writing at a sketch comedy show called Studio C and Harmon Brothers reached out at like sort of the very beginning of its journey because they liked a, a couple of the sketches that I had written and they said, hey, we'd love to work together at some point. And then I went off to a job that I ended up hating and they brought me back. And the first one we did together was Squatty Potty. And so I, I wrote on Squatty Potty, Purple, Chatbooks, Fiberfix, Lumi. I think those have been the bigger ones that I've worked on. Yeah, I had forgotten that you were you were working out in like Boston or something. And we flew you in from Boston to write on the Squatty Potty ad. I, I was in Dallas and oh, I, feel, I, feel, I feel really bad because... I'm sure there are a lot of people who grew up in Dallas who love Dallas and I hated it, but I can't tell if I just hated it because I hated the job I was doing. But I have a friend who lives there who describes Dallas as what if capitalism got everything it wanted? <laughs> She's like, it's, it's not walkable. The regulations are all weird. You have an entire city that's like just corporate buildings. I have this theory about people who love a city, but don't live in the city. Like if mm. you travel or you're going to a place, if you're like, I'm going to Denver and somebody's like, oh man, I love Denver. I have this theory that when somebody loves a city, it means that they love three things in that city. <laughs> sure. Because it's always just like, you have to go to this restaurant, you have to go to this coffee shop, and there's a cool museum. I'm like, okay, that's like 20,000 square feet <laughs> collectively of a yeah, metropolis. It's, it's like when you think you love an actor or actress, when really it's like, oh no, I love what they are doing when they are on screen for probably 10% <laughs> of their lives. <laughs> yep. So... So Dave, we, we flew you in, you worked on Squatty Potty, you wrote on all those ads. Kind of talk to us about the approach that you took and what you brought to the table in, 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 as we developed all those ads. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things that we thought of in, with those ads was always making sure that comedy was in service of sales rather than vice versa. So within the group, we call it joking downstream, where anytime there's a joke or anytime there's a funny, you don't want it to be diverting you too much from whatever your persuasive message is. You want those birds to kind of be flying in concert rather than at odds with each other. And so there's always that balance between how do you get it absurd enough to a place that it's funny without making it so absurd that you lose clarity or you lose like the urgency or people don't feel the pain of the problem that you're describing. Like, did you lose that, lose out on any jokes that you wrote and loved, but they didn't make it into the ad? There's always a million jokes and, and usually they're usually I'll come with a couple jokes that get cut just because the team isn't comfortable with the content. <laughs> One that I remember, I think on the purple ad, 
I think on the purple ad, I wanted to make a joke. One of the engineers had done some work for Nike and I wanted to bring that up and then end with, so don't be surprised if you and your partner feel inclined to just do it. And that, that bombed in the room and then people weren't comfortable with it. <laughs> I actually remember that now that you mention it and the joke oh, didn't yeah. bomb. The joke actually landed. Everyone laughed. <laughs> but then it was one of those ones where the founders were just like, nope, we're not going there. <laughs> I, I honestly don't have a great memory for which jokes get rejected because I've gotten to the point where my strategy is kind of that of like a salmon parent where it's like, if I just have a ton, a lot of them are going to die, but hopefully enough get through that I like leave my legacy. You know what I mean? So you forget the ones that die really quickly. Like if I were Marlon and Finding Nemo, I'd be like, well, guess that batch died. <laughs> 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 gonna start again <laughs> it's a volume game how about you kellen how did you get involved in writing ads i did oh i did a dry bar special which is kind of you guys you benton you've heard of dry bar <laughs> yes I, I've, I've heard of dry bar <laughs> there are a couple uh harman brothers involved with dry bar and so after i was uh, I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian i you know did that for a thing i'd been doing it for 11 or 12 years at that point i did dry bar and then jeffrey Harmon thought that i would be a good fit for a writing team and i i, I love the idea and, and i've worked on about 20 projects with Harmon brothers since i love that idea it seems like sort of a pioneering idea rather than trying to teach a, a marketing team comedy you just you take Profession, people who've worked professionally in comedy writing and teach them some marketing. Mm -hmm. Like if there's a chicken and egg scenario, like this is the most effective, you know, egg to chicken. I like to think I was the, <laughs> I was the chicken and you guys are the egg, but whatever. Why is that? I don't even, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't press too hard on his Please analogies. Stop, <laughs> stop, stop paying me in eggs is what I'm pleading with you <laughs> no, but it was definitely like i've seen both sides of it now and it does seem to to be very effective to you know when you have somebody with years of comedy chops especially great ones like me <laughs> just tune into the book pile for more <laughs> loving self-promotion if anything like the, the one thing i end up doing is having to cut a lot of jokes for that reason for that joking downstream reason because my scripts are just too funny you know what i mean <laughs> Uh, but it's more just than like throwing in throwing in the sales. But I I do love the the balance. I love the 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 limits. The balance on it of it has to be funny, but you have to sell something. But you shouldn't sound like you're selling something at the same time. One of my favorite jokes that was dropped. It was obviously meant to be very ironic, but you can't always assume that everyone's going to get it. But it was, it was a script about security systems and we had a female spokesperson and I wanted her close to the end of the ad to say, to introduce the reviews, I wanted her to say, don't believe me just because I'm a woman. Well, here are some things that men had to say. <laughs> And yeah, that it didn't fly. Some of the jokes are just for the writer's room to keep morale going. I, I feel like I'm going to get canceled just because I chuckled at that joke just now. <laughs> I was I was laughing at his sexism. <laughs> I was laughing from a place of superiority. All right, so we're on the Poop to Gold podcast here. So let, let's uncover your Poop to Gold journeys. I'm absolutely convinced that every successful person 
has had to go through some serious crap to get to where they're at. Let's go to Kellen. I just want to say, Dave, Dave, as a white guy with a dad for a doctor, is thinking, man, when have things been hard for me ever? <laughs> well, no, I, ha I have a story in mind, but it's not, it's not when things got dark. Uh. <laughs> So, so, right, this, I'll, so I'll this, so this episode will be covering first world problems. It sounds like. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I feel like I had uh, less of a privilege bringing uh, upbringing. So, when I, <laughs> I was doing comedy for about close to ten years in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, working the day job at a soft, uh, soft water company where I'm just like basically shoveling salt every day into these apartment complex containers writing jokes in my head during the day going to just thankless open mics night after night in the city uh, in the whole sort of surrounding area going you know these are like basement shows pub shows shows by close to the campus of UCSF where you're just like imposing comedy on on students in a cafe who had no idea a comedy show was going to be happening. <laughs> so I do that for years. I sort of work my way up the totem pole. I, I have a cousin like that where when you hang out with him, you're like, oh, I, I didn't sign up for these bits. <laughs> this is relentless. <laughs> in the in San Francisco they do have comedy clubs so I was able to work myself into the into those clubs not headlining those are the people who have TV credits and come in but at least opening for a lot of bigger names like I, I was able to work with people like Norm Macdonald Sinbad r even Robin Williams I did a few shows with them and it's such a crazy disparity when you you get to do a show with like a childhood hero and then drive home to your tiny apartment <laughs> and your used Honda. And then I, uh, yeah, I moved to LA. It's sort of the darkest time for me was, was moving to Los Angeles. I was able to tra transfer this uh, sort of mindless, mindless job. So at least I, I had worked during the day, but then LA, San Francisco is a big supportive group of, of comedians and you end up getting to know everyone. There's maybe a hundred to 200 of them at any given point, but you go move to LA and there's just a 11,000 people trying to make it and nobody cares about you. That's, that was Los Angeles. Now, why, why such a disparity in the culture around comedy between those, you know, you know, San Francisco and L.A. are both big places. Why, why, why such a different culture? Well, in, in San Francisco, yeah, you have a lot of people that are, were just sort of born and raised in San Francisco. And so you almost have this sort of like a community spirit about like, we're all trying to make it and we're all trying to get out of here. Like you, you usually see that in movies about a small town, like one day I'm going to shake the dust of this criminal town off my feet <laughs> LA or New York you have to end up in LA or New York so everyone is trying to get out to one of those places and so when you arrive in in Los Angeles for example now you're just with a group of people who just moved there as well that's what it feels right. like so there's no sense of community most of us don't know each other there's no discernible path like if you were working at target and you start out as you know a lower level employee you mm -hmm. just see this path there's nothing there are dozens of different clubs that you could invest your time in so people could see you and know you so where do you go who do you know who are you supposed to know when do you know if an agent is going to show up it's so random the, the 
so that that was the hardest thing for me was going from the Bay Area, where any given night at the end of my sort of ten year, you know, of the ten years of experience there, I could get thirty thirty minutes at any of these clubs who would have me working. I having worked myself up from these five minute gigs. I moved to Los Angeles. And now there are, it's so saturated with comics. I have to start back at square one at the open mics and prove myself. But down there you have two to three minutes and so many comedians show up at every open mic. You write your name on a piece of paper, throw it in a hat and wait around for two and a half hours and hope that yours gets picked. Oh, it's literally, they're drawing names out of a hat. That's yeah. it. And they could just pick them all like at the beginning, write a list and tell everyone who made it, but they want to keep people in the venue. Oh, man. So you just have to sit there. And some comics have been doing it like me for, you know, 10 years. Some of them started last week. So it's, it's like not it's a like fun the, show. It's the bachelor model. Even if you know who you're going to pick, you keep everyone else on the line for as long as possible. Yeah. <laughs> it was So it was so hard. It was almost three years of that, of like working on all day and then not seeing my family much and then going to a show. Wait, wait, you had, you had a family at the same time that you were doing this? A wife and three kids. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's gotta be an anomaly in, in that industry. It is. Oh yeah. You tell people in Los Angeles that you have three kids and they act like it's 17. <laughs> <laughs> And so, so as you're going through that, what does that feel like for your wife? I mean, she was very supportive. <laughs> he didn't ask her. <laughs> he doesn't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it looked like behind my back, but she was supportive <laughs> when I came home. And it was nice. When I started comedy, I wasn't married or anything. So at least I was like, I, I was on this trajectory, seemingly like in the Bay Area of like every year I was making a little more money. It looked like there was a way out. Then and and, and she went in with open eyes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so moving to LA, I did take that pay cut. But if anything, the one thing that kept me going in, in all of those through the, that very, very dark time is that I, I, what I was waiting for was to be seen by that agent on that night. Whenever it was, that's what you do. And there is no like agent night. I wish that there were. They could do it. It doesn't make sense that they don't. But I was just waiting for the right time and place to happen. And the one thing that kept me going was knowing that for as long as it wasn't happening, at least I was getting better and better. I was deliberately putting in this effort of writing jokes, rewriting, performing, so that when I did get picked up, which I did, I won this random little competition that a couple agents happened to be at. Both of them asked me to lunch the next day, and I got to choose sort of between you know the two wow. boys. And uh, you, you but, know what's interesting about that, Kellen, is that that honestly sounds very similar to dating, where you know when people are like, "Oh, dating is like lightning striking," and it's like. Yeah, that's true. But also, you can do things to improve your odds of getting struck by lightning. You know what I mean? Like, if that's what you want, you go out in rainstorms, you hold tall poles. Like, true, you can you can do things to improve your odds. That's true. Very. Uh, I ask people sometimes in the audience when I'm doing shows what their biggest fear is, and some people will say sharks. And my thing is like, I, I mean, that seems avoidable, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so that was it in a nutshell when i finally got uh, discovered i had a couple of options i went with the best one and then because i had this massive amount of polished material behind me from years of being undiscovered i got approved for conan uh, within a week which is pretty unheard wow. of 
uh, in that process, usually there's a feedback loop that happens for six to 12 months for that show. So thing, things took off uh, pretty, pretty quickly for me. And that was my, that was the goal that I finally found in waiting, wading with a D through, you know, three years of <laughs> Los Angeles poop. <laughs> I don't know if uh, you've mentioned before that you were on Conan. Oh, yes. I tried yeah, mention at least uh, three times per podcast that I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you had to sum that up into one takeaway for our listeners, how would you do that? I would say that success is a, it's just a numbers game. That's all it is, is that the more, the more lottery tickets that you buy, the, the, the better your chances are that one of them's going to pick, get picked up. That's all that it is. And so I, yeah. I went to as many shows as I could and eventually somebody saw me. And if I would have gone to half as many shows, it would have taken me twice as long. That's how I see it. Yeah. I, th I think my favorite analogy that I've heard in that realm is that it's like you're playing baseball and you have maybe a very low batting average, but you get to decide how many at bats you have. So as long as you keep coming back, even if each one has like, you know, an infinitesimal whatever that word is, small chance of success. <laughs> Cumulatively, that adds up to a much higher odds of success as long as you keep coming back and playing that high volume game. It's like salmon parenting. Like salmon parenting, yeah. <laughs> That's a good analogy, Benton. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, right. my, my parents have 10 kids, so I think that was also their like evolutionary strategy. <laughs> 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 all right let's go back to dave let's let's hear your privileged first world uh, poop to gold journey so my i would say one of my most pivotal moments in my life was the month that i was transitioning from my like straightforward conformist day job to writing ads and comedy full-time it was the it was also the month that squatty potty came out so for for a little bit of context I grew up my whole life thinking I was supposed to be a doctor just because, you know, my dad's a doctor and that was just kind of the expectation. And I always had in my head as a kid, like, oh, but I'll write at night because I love writing. Like, I, I think I wrote my first short story when I was like nine. It was, we had just read Lord of the Rings. I wrote this short story about elves. I got bored at the end. So the last line is, it was a tough battle, but in the end, the elves died. <laughs> and I, I don't know that my endings have gotten better since then. But I always had in my head, I'm supposed to be a doctor, but I really want to write, so I'll just write at night. And I never gave myself like any kind of mental permission that writing or content creation was a viable career path for me. So I, I was about to go to med school. I was like, oh, crap, I think I'm going to be really miserable. I real quick applied to some consulting firms and got a job at a consulting firm. And then I was miserable. And I did like a year there. And that was when the Harmon brothers contacted me about writing on Squatty Potty. And I just loved it. Like I came to that retreat and I was like, oh, I had no idea. I had no idea that this could be like a viable career path forward for me. So the, the month that it happened was kind of the most insane month of my life. So I had to, I had to bail, bail my roommate out of jail. I had to help. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to help gather ransom for a relative of the drummer in my band. I was working on a case at this consulting company. I won't say the company because I don't want to offend any Batman villains out there, but we were working on a case where we got like two hours of sleep on, on some nights. So it was this insane case. I don't want to cheapen this next part. Like I, I don't want this next part to be just like a bullet point in this crazy month, but there were a couple of murders. So someone, someone was murdered in the building in like the Bane or crap in the... <laughs> 
in the office building while we were there working late one night an acquaintance of mine was murdered shortly thereafter so there was just all these like insane crazy things happening oh i started getting these pains of what turned out later to be arthritis kind of arthritis that my dad has yeah this this decision to transition from you know the the normal conformist day job to writing full-time and trying to make it that way writing and marketing it was happening during just the most insane intense period of my life but i I think for me the biggest takeaway was i hadn't given myself permission to pursue something i was interested in i've i've heard someone who has something called the excellent sheep hypothesis where he talks about how if the conformist path has worked for you it's very difficult to get off that conformist path onto something more creative. So he was looking specifically at why child prodigies so rarely achieve something monumental later in life. And his hypothesis was they get so used to going through, you know, going through these straightforward checkpoints that they, they never give themselves permission to go off and be creative and be bad at something for a while because they're so used to that constant reinforcement. And I think that was definitely my experience where I was just very used to the reinforcement and the encouragement that came from the conformist pathway. And it took like a pretty heavy jolt for me to really try something else. So did all the craziness that was going on during that month, did that, did that help to persuade you or had you already made the decision and then it kind of confirmed your decision? What, what impact did it have on you? I think the first impact it had was just that I had to make that choice during kind of the highest stress conditions possible. I think they a little bit helped me out the door. And this was probably unfair to the consulting firm, but I think the added stress of those things just made me feel like, okay, I need just a less stressful pathway in general. When, when I quit at the consulting firm, they didn't seem super happy to see me go, but no one tried to talk me out of it. Like, I, I don't know that I was particularly great at consulting. I think it's possible that just the volatility and the craziness of that month was helpful in realizing, okay, yeah, I've gone through all the steps. I've done everything you're like, quote, supposed to do. And all this crazy crap is still happening at once. So how much riskier is this like comedic writing pathway anyway, you know? And how is that decision shaped up for you? It's been almost unambiguously positive since then. Um, so I've, I've gotten to market for companies that I really care about and have really enjoyed writing ads. Now I, I have a number of just like purely creative projects that I'm really enjoying. So right now I'm, I'm writing on a, a show that my friends and I crowdfunded called Freelancers. Kellen and I are doing our podcast. So I've, I've been very happy with how things have turned out. And in retrospect, I'm a little surprised by how long it took for me to just give myself that mental permission. I even remember in college, my favorite class was my intro to film class. And at the time, I was just like, huh, that's odd. On to med school. (laughs) (laughs) My path to Harmon Brothers also went through consulting. I was a consultant at a a different firm. I have much, much fewer disparaging... Discourages loitering. (laughs) Yes, yes. But I'm curious to know, when I turned in my resignation and I left the firm... I did it because we were about to embark on the Poopery campaign. But keep in mind, the Poopery campaign was not a thing yet, meaning it hadn't come out and been proven to be successful. Um, at that point, it was just a poop spray that no one had heard about. And so I went to my manager and told her that I was leaving Deloitte so that I could go do marketing for Poopery, which is a poop spray. <laughs> 
I I wish I could see a recording of the room when when that happened. Like her her face was just one of like complete dismay, and there was no way she could wrap her head around it or understand that decision. And it's one of those ones that at the time it seemed like an absolutely you know crazy decision to uproot my family and move them across the country to go sell poop spray. But now looking back at it, I think that it's probably hands down the number one most pivotal and best decision that I ever made for my career. So it, it, it's crazy how, how the, the right path, it, it can shape up to not be the right path at all. I think it's so interesting too that like both of your stories are like I had a successful job at a successful place and I'm like I had a terrible job <laughs> and I wasn't making money at comedy. <laughs> oh, correct me if I'm wrong here. If I remember right, none of us has a high school diploma, right? <laughs> is that the three of us? Is that the case? I, I yeah, I know I'm a dropout. I didn't know that about the two yeah, of you. I'm a dropout. Also, you never want to guess on that. And be wrong. <laughs> hey, none of us graduated high school, right? Oh, just me. <laughs> I remember, I remember when I was, and this honestly, this isn't bragging because I did terrible in college. This is just funny to me as a story. I started going to college when I was 14. Like I was homeschooled and I took a proficiency exam in California so I could start taking courses at the local community college. And so I was skateboarding with a couple of friends and a kid was asking me where I went to school. And I said, well, I'm supposed to be going into the ninth grade. We were both in, you know, like 13 at the time. I said, uh, I was supposed to go into ninth grade and this other kid cuts me off and he goes, oh, me too. But I got held back a year. And I was like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> bye. <laughs> I love that story about you doing awful in those classes because I want to see that news story that's like, this 14-year-old is doing college classes badly. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah, I was not that prodigy on Oprah who went to Harvard when they were seven. I just sort of found a loophole in the education system. And yeah, I did well in English and stuff and terrible in everything else. It's honestly, this is making me realize that in all those cool like prodigy stories, they never tell you what grades those kids are getting. <laughs> Maybe we don't want to look too closely. <laughs> well, guys, it's been fun having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you guys giving our, our listeners the opportunity to, to hear about your background, hear your stories. And of course, for our listeners, stay in touch with Dave and with Kellen. Go, go listen to their podcast, The Book Pile. And how about social media? Where are you guys most active? Uh, Instagram, Instagram and Twitter, but Instagram seems to be the most effective. So yeah, Kellen Erskine comic or just Google me. You'll find it. I, I don't really post comedic things on social media, but I do write songs on my Instagram, Dave L. Vance, if you want to come to me for a totally random and different reason. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again, guys. And for our listeners, so much. make sure to like, share and subscribe. We'll see you on the next one. At Harmon Brothers, we're known for what we call our hero campaigns. These are big nationwide campaigns for brands like Squatty Potty, Poopery, Purple Mattresses, Lumi Deodorant, and many others. What makes these campaigns special is that they've helped scale those businesses by tens of millions of dollars each. Now, companies reach out to us on a regular basis wanting a hero campaign. They want that type of growth, they want that type of branding, and they want that type of awareness. 
But the simple reality is, most businesses and entrepreneurs aren't yet quite ready for that level of growth. So we've built what we call a hero incubator that is designed to help entrepreneurs and companies prepare for a hero campaign and to be ready for the type of growth that they're looking for. The hero incubator starts with a marketing audit. We offer these marketing audits for free and you can apply for one at harmanbrothers.com forward slash audit.